This copyright expired song is Stumbling by Zez Coffrey. But I'm not here to talk about Stumbling by Zez Coffrey. I'm here to spit on the graves of long dead people who cannot defend themselves. So I'm back in Hollywood. You may recall that I recently came across a star on the Walk of Fame that jumped out at me because it was the star for Wallace Beery who is referenced in one of my favorite movies of all time, Barton Fink. Until I saw that star, I did not know that Wallace Beery was a real dude. But he was a real dude, and I looked him up, and uh, apparently kind of a monster. I covered that two episodes back. But anyway, it got me thinking. The other actor referenced in Barton Fink is probably also real, and I looked it up, and sure enough, Jack Oakey was a real dude. And not only was he real... He also has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's located at 6752 Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, I know where that is. That's right between uh, number one Hollywood Best America Gift Shop and the Scientology Dog Grooming Center. Yeah, no, I know where that is. So let's talk about Jack Oakey for a minute. The first thing to know about Jack Oakey is that he was apparently not such a historic monster that all his monstrous acts are all over his Wikipedia page. Which is kind of the goal for all of us, right? It's like, don't, I, don't expect me to not be a monster, okay? I, I am a monster, but I'm not such a monster that it makes my Wikipedia page. Unlike Wallace fucking Beery, who hit a kid up for 75 cents, tried to get a kid to pay 75 cents for lunch. Which I would say is the level of shit that needs to go on a Wikipedia page and be read about 100 years later. Jack Oakey, different situation. He was a comedian Oakey was a stage name because he was from Oklahoma. So Oki is uh, kind of a slur against Oklahomans. We don't talk much about anti-Oklahoma bias. I should Next time I'm on Andrew Heaton's podcast, he's from Oklahoma. I'm going to ask him if he experiences a lot of anti-Oklahoma bias. I'm in California now, the epicenter of anti-Oklahoma bias. I haven't experienced much yet, but it could be bubbling beneath the surface, because, I mean, seriously, those people, right? Anyway, Oki was a stage name. His first character, as you might guess, was kind of a hayseed, because basically all comedy back then was stock ethnic characters. Every character back then was like the hillbilly or the Italian or minstrelry was sort of in this area. It's all ethnic humor of one sort of another. But he moved on from that. He became known for two things. The first thing was double takes. An essential part of comedy back then. Watch who's on first. Lots of double takes in that. I grew up with double takes. I remember watching uh, Mr. Ed. A lot of double takes on Mr. Ed because the horse is applying for a home mortgage. That is an uncommon thing for horses to do. That deserves a double take. Also, Don Knotts on The Andy Griffith Show. Is anybody better at double takes than Don fucking Knotts? That guy, he could make his eyes bigger than his head. Also, Bewitched. Lot of double takes on Bewitched. And I'll tell you why. It's because they couldn't afford to show the magical thing. They could not show the magical thing. So instead, what you do is you show somebody reacting to the magical thing, and then you show the end point of the magical thing. So it'd go like this. Uh, Sam, uh, she's mad at a bartender, okay? She gets mad at a bartender. She wrinkles her nose. 
cut to the drunk guy at the end of the bar watching what's happening, and now it's time for a double take. Whoa, what? What's going on? Then cut to monkey bartender. And then, and then, this is where I come in, then you go for the kicker. This is my time to shine. This is how I put bread on my table, because you need a kicker to end the scene. And I think the kicker in this situation would be the drunk looks at his glass and goes, This is strong stuff! The second thing Jack Oakey is known for is college films. I grew up on college films, Animal House, Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's. I didn't know that college films were a genre that went all the way back to the 30s, but they are. And Jack Oakey played a college student in movies including, but not limited to, College Humor, College Rhythm, Collegiate, Touchdown. He played a college student into his mid-30s. It was that weird era of movies where you'd hit a point in your career where you could conceivably play the president, but you could also maybe play Farty McKegger of Alpha Phi House in a college flick, and I have tried to find these movies. Unfortunately, I can't find them, but I can find clips, and the clips tell me they're the same thing as all those 70s and 80s frat house comedies. It's all just sex jokes, sex and dating jokes. I get it. I get it. I understand. People are horny. (laughs) People are horny. You know who the horniest people are? college-aged men. So these movies are for college-aged men, and they have jokes and horniness and babes, and uh, then more jokes and horniness and babes. Those are the three ingredients, and just throw them in the pot as much as you can. That is where Jack Oakey made his living for a long time. So, I learned a little something about who Jack Oakey was and how his role in entertainment mirrors what we see today, and so did you, whether you wanted to or not. Hello. I'm Jeff Maurer. You're listening to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the podcast where I piss on a dead person's grave and then talk about the Supreme Court for 20 minutes. God, what a weird format. What am I doing? What am I doing? Anyway, thank you for listening. Everything I am covering today can be found on my substack, which is imightberwrong.substack.com. It is completely free. Again, what the fuck am I doing? Did I think this through at all? Obviously, the answer is no. Today's episode is called The Court's Conservatives Are Lying About Gay Marriage. Ooh, splashy headline. Maybe a bit of an overstatement, but I wanted to write this one because Roe versus Wade has been struck down. People are worried that the Supreme Court ruling that legalized gay marriage in 2015 will also be struck down. And this worry is largely behind a bill that has passed the House and is currently in the Senate that would legalize gay marriage across the country. Personally, I think that is a very good bill. But there is a reasonable question coming from the other side of the aisle, which is asking, why is this necessary? Gay marriage is legal. That opinion stands. That opinion is not presently being challenged in court. Do we actually need a law to protect this ruling? I think it's a fair question, and it's the question that I'm going to attempt to answer 
in this episode, which again is called The Court's Conservatives Are Lying About Gay Marriage, subheading, but it's not clear which part of their story is a lie. Let's start with truly one of the bigger questions of our time. Are Supreme Court justices, high-minded philosophers who interpret the law in a neutral fashion, or are they just a bunch of dweebs in funeral ponchos who claim objectivity while actually shaping the law in whatever way tickles their metaphorical pickle? I am not cynical enough to say that it is definitely the latter. But I am cynical enough to say it is absolutely not the former either. The court's conservatives seem to want us to believe in the justices are neutral philosophers view. The central tenet of their judicial philosophy is that judges are too involved in lawmaking and really need to butt out. Chief Justice Roberts is reportedly very concerned with the court's credibility. I wonder how he feels about the fact that public confidence in the court is at a 50-year low. That is an unbelievable failure, (laughs) if you think about it. It is as if Roberts set himself the goal of getting six-pack abs and then ended up on my 600-pound life getting hoisted into his bathtub with a hydraulic lift. And as much as the court's conservatives might want us to believe that they are just neutral arbiters. We're just neutral arbiters. We call balls and strikes. They do seem to also want us to believe that they will make politically expedient decisions when the chips are down. This is the conclusion I am forced to draw from their recent actions. Roberts and his his friends, his buddies on the Supreme Court, the conservatives, are mixing high-minded talk of above-the-fray judicial detachment with wink-and-nod assurances that they won't follow their judicial philosophy to its logical endpoint. They seem to expect us to believe that both things are true. I find it logically impossible to believe that both things are true, and that is why I think we need a law protecting gay marriage. Let me explain the thinking that gets me to where I am. There's basically one sentence that is causing all the trouble here. In the opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade, that would be Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. I call it Dobbs or Dauber for short. In that decision, Justice Alito wrote, quote, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. End quote. Translation, The court does not have its sights set on gay marriage, which, once again, became legal after the 2015 Obergefell versus Hobbes decision. Obergefell for short. You know, from now on, we really need litigants with easier names. Let's make that a goal. Anyway, that's what Alito said, basically, veiled about Obergefell in Dobbs. Now, it's worth noting, by the way, that Clarence Thomas has made it very clear that he does not agree (laughs) one bit that the precedents underpinning gay marriage and other sexual freedoms are not under threat. So, credit to him, I guess? I guess? 
that in this episode, as I make accusations of duplicity, I'm, I guess I'm making those against the other conservative justices. Justice Thomas seems to be willing, eager even, to follow his convictions wherever they lead, even if that is to Crazy Town, USA. So, nice going, Justice Thomas? But let's discuss the other conservative justices. The other justices, led by Alito, seem to understand that going after same-sex marriage would not be popular. 71% of Americans support gay marriage. Liberals are pissed about Dobbs in a way that cannot be expressed in English. And they would shit an entire Chrysler building worth of bricks if Obergefell was struck down. If the court were to suddenly invalidate scores of same-sex marriages, or at least make it so that nobody else can get same-sex married, at that point, the court's reshaping of American life will have reached Godzilla rampaging through Tokyo-sized proportions. And this is surely why Alito felt the need to assure us that Dobbs is only about abortion and that the court's conservatives are done taking big swings. But if you think about it, why would they be done? What judicial principle separates Dobbs from Obergefell and other cases about personal liberty? The answer, as far as I can tell, is none. I think the logic used in Dobbs all but requires overturning Obergefell. And let me point out that I do have some weasel words in there that I am leaning on a bit. As far as I can tell, there's no principle. The logic used in Dobbs all but requires overturning Obergefell. I should point out that it is possible to conjure judicial principles that would separate the two, and I'll actually get to one of those in a minute. But I feel that my point stands, based on what they've written, if you simply read those opinions in a vacuum, you would probably conclude that Dobbs is going to lead to overturning Obergefell. Let's get into the actual law here, which is a quirky thing I like to do when talking about the law. The 14th Amendment is at the center of both Dobbs and Obergefell. The 14th Amendment, you may recall from civics class, is one of the big ones. It's not some crap amendment like the 3rd or the 27th. Come at me, 27th Amendment Twitter. The 14th Amendment, that's one of those post-Civil War amendments that seeks to ensure that all Americans enjoy equal rights. You cannot deprive someone of their life, liberty, or property for some completely fucking stupid reason, like their race. You have to have a good stupid fucking reason, like finding a small amount of marijuana in their glove box. And the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause forbids states from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Which does raise the question, what in the hell does that mean? Most relevantly, what does liberty encompass in this context? Does it encompass the right to reproduce? The right to run on the field naked at a baseball game? The right to yell, hey, save some for the fish! When someone's taking too long at a drinking fountain, the answers obviously are yes, no, and yes. But then after that, things get a little complicated. Obergefell and Dobbs both address the parameters of the due process clause. 
In Obergefell, three of the four conservative justices seem to believe that liberty does not include the freedom to marry. Justices Thomas and Alito each wrote dissents in which they forcefully defend a narrow conception of the word liberty. Justice Scalia, who I would say has assumed a role in conservative jurisprudence that is basically, I would say, Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque. He calls the expansive reading of the Due Process Clause by liberals a, quote, threat to American democracy, unquote. The gloves are off. All four conservative justices who ruled on that case took the opportunity to write a dissent. All four of them wrote a dissent. They were like a rap group recording a diss track, each one of them trying to one-up the others as they took turns spitting fire at the object of their disdain. And the one conservative justice who might be able to argue that he created room to say, okay, marriage is a right, abortion is not, is Roberts. Roberts makes it clear in his dissent, because again, everyone gets one. He makes it clear that he sees marriage, though not gay marriage, as a fundamental right. In his dissent, he writes, quote, there is no serious dispute that under our precedents, the Constitution protects a right to marry, end quote. So he agrees that there's a right to marry. The thing that blows my mind is that he gets off the train before reaching the next logical step, which is that, okay, well, if there's a right, then everyone possesses it, not just straight people. My uncharitable reading of Robert's argument in Obergefell, after the point at which he says, yes, marriage is a right, my uncharitable reading is that it is basically gibberish. Sorry, that's what I thought. I feel that his argument basically amounts to an internally conflicted John Roberts gasping breathlessly, but come on, come on, not gays, though. Again, this is uncharitable, but it was honestly the reaction that I had in the course of searching for an explanation as to why marriage is a right, but apparently not a right possessed by everyone, which makes it kind of not really a right. Robert sings the praises of opposite-sex marriage as, quote, he really goes off the rails here, quote, a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia for the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs, end quote. Well, if the Aztecs did it, then it's good enough for me. It's nice to know that if I ever choose to engage in human sacrifice, like the Aztecs did, or child abandonment, like the Carthaginians did, then John Roberts will have my back. The more charitable reading of Roberts' argument is that he has a broad aversion to establishing rights via the 14th Amendment. This puts him in line with the other Obergefell dissents. The four conservatives just do not think that the court should be in the rights-defining business. Which, I have to say, is one of those I-don't-agree-but-I-understand-where-you're-coming-from arguments. The dissents in Obergefell expressed the belief that by finding new rights in the Due Process Clause, it is, in fact, the liberals who are engaging in a Godzilla-style rampage. Or perhaps, I don't know, maybe they think the liberals are Mothra. I, I'm not sure. The question of who exactly is which Japanese movie monster 
has not yet been established by the court. At any rate, it seems clear that Roberts, Alito, and Thomas would give gay marriage the thumbs down if the question was litigated again. In the comments section of this article, a lot of people said, eh, I don't know about Roberts. You'll see where I'm going with this. I kind of agree, maybe not Roberts, but I do have to point out he did already vote against it. He already voted against it. So if gay marriage comes before the court again, to not nix it this time would be to basically say, man, we totally blew it way, way back in 2015. I don't quite know what event might change their minds so quickly. It would have to be something along the lines of a Christmas Eve visit from gay Jacob Marley and his husband, Ghost Scrooge. Side note, would you watch a Netflix series called The Adventures of Gay Jacob Marley and Ghost Scrooge? I got a meeting next week. I think I'll pitch that. Anyway, the big question then, because we probably know where Roberts, Alito, and Thomas land. At least we know where they land if they're going to remain consistent with where they were in 2015. The big question then is where Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett stand. And of course, justices' opinions on not-yet-litigated cases are always a coquettish fan dance. But by backing Dobbs, the three Trump-appointed justices endorsed the same skepticism of due process clause-derived rights that animates the Obergefell dissents. Dobbs repudiates the logic of Roe and Obergefell. In his opinion, Justice Alito speaks of the abortion right that the court derived from the 14th Amendment with the same disdainful tone that I have used on this blog to talk about George Clooney's Midnight Sky, which is to say, withering! Alito writes about abortion, not about the Midnight Sky. He writes, quote, In interpreting what is meant by the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty, we must guard against the natural human tendency to confuse what that amendment protects with our own ardent views about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. That is why the court has long been reluctant. He puts reluctance in quotes. I don't know why. The court has long been reluctant to recognize rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution. End quote. That's what Alito wrote, and Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined Alito's opinion. Though Alito allows that the 14th Amendment protects rights with deep roots in the nation's traditions, he made it clear in Obergefell that he does not believe that same-sex marriage meets that test. So, my question is, what evidence exists that Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett believe that the 14th Amendment does not protect the right to abortion, but does protect the right to gay marriage. In their short time on the court, they have joined in their colleagues' due process clause bashing and shown no signs that they favor a broader interpretation of the 14th Amendment. If they did hold that view, it would make them extreme outliers in the conservative movement. Being a conservative judge with a broad view of the 14th Amendment is like being a Mennonite who is highly active in the orgy scene. Not common. Probably only two of Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett would be needed to overturn Obergefell. So observing their actions thus far does make the ruling seem anything but safe. And yet, some Republican senators 
are acting like Obergefell faces no threat whatsoever. Bill Cassidy of Louisiana called same-sex marriage, quote, obviously settled law right now. Roger Wicker of Mississippi flatly stated, I do not believe the Supreme Court is going to touch this issue. Marco Rubio called Democrats' efforts to protect the rights enshrined in Obergefell, quote, a stupid waste of time, end quote. Hey, that is exactly how I would describe the entire existence of Marco Rubio. Gay marriage is a wedge issue for Republicans, so they do not want to vote on it. And so they are acting like Democrats are pushing a bill purely for messaging reasons. And look, I know that Democrats have been known to advance legislation for identity-based messaging reasons. How could any living organism not know that? But if you trace the logic of the court's recent decisions, I think the threat to Obergefell seems very real. In fact, I think the only way the threat could not be real is if the conservative justices are lying about being neutral arbiters. That's why I use the big L word in the headline. The logic of their recent rulings presents an obvious threat to Obergefell. Maybe it's not case closed, but there's a clear threat there. I personally find Alito's insistence that the arguments made in Dobbs won't influence other decisions about as reassuring as a waiter who leans in while I'm eating and whispers, there is absolutely no semen in your soup. For some reason, my mind is not at ease. But, plot twist here. <laughs> the truth is, I actually think that Senate Republicans, in a weird way, are probably right. I don't think the court will touch gay marriage. But, but, I only feel that way because I think the, hey, we just call balls and strikes posture is mostly bullshit. I think at the end of the day, the court will find a way to avoid ending gay marriage because of this thing or that thing, or they just won't take a case. And they'll do that because legally splitting up married couples or preventing future couples from getting married, that is a very bad look. If anything is the judicial equivalent of crashing a wedding, throwing the cake on the floor, and honking the bride's boobs, overturning Obergefell would be that. But, because I might be wrong.substack.com about this, I think we should absolutely pass a law protecting same-sex marriage. The House has already passed that bill. The Senate should follow suit. This is way too important of an issue to take a chance. The court's conservatives keep insisting that these issues should be settled by Congress. So, okay... Settle it, Congress. It is pathetic how conservatives on the court and in Congress who know that their stance on gay marriage is unpopular keep looking to the other branch to be the bad guy. And the court is supposed to be above that type of consideration. But both the good news and the bad news is that they are probably not. And that's the episode. I'd like to reiterate that it is possible to find legitimate judicial ways to separate Dobbs from Obergefell. I saw some good 
comments on the article. I received some good emails pointing out that there are actually ways to do it. Fair points all. My point is that they didn't do that in 2015 when they actually had a chance to rule on Obergefell. Their concerns about the 14th Amendment growing bigger and bigger and bigger and encompassing more and more things carried the day, and then they made a very similar argument in Dobbs. So the idea that they will suddenly find the limiting factor on their judicial philosophy, I don't, they might, they could, but they have not been inclined thus far to do that. So if they do it now, eh, I think it's maybe kind of for political reasons. Anyway, I hope this was the best Jack Oakey and Supreme Court ruling podcast you listened to this week. If you like the podcast, please leave me a rating on iTunes or whatever your thing is, Spotify. I don't know what Stitch, Blister, Hump, Blap. I don't know how you listen to this, but please leave me a positive rating. And of course, the Substack is imightberong.substack.com. It is completely free unless you would like to pay me just to show off. And I'll be back next week with another story of a long-dead Hollywood star who is immortalized in cement outside of a vape shop. And then some other crap that's probably about politics. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.